0: Games have their their places. They they do, um, to be sure. Games are are, fan, are are wonderful, worth some diversion, I suppose, from time to time. But they they have a a, a place, um, but only a place, a certain place. And sometimes we need more. Sometimes we need more than just than just games. Um, some of you may know that the French have a, a little game that they invented some years ago. You take a, a daisy, and uh, it goes like this. He or she loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. And, and then the, the idea being, of course, with that, that little game, that the uh, the person who's playing it is trying to discern, does the object of their affection, well, how, how are they faring in, in the eyes of, of that beholder? Do they share that same affection in a reciprocal sort of way and so they're saying these phrases alternately He loves me, and then pulling the petals as they go and then you know by the time you get to the end of the circle of the daisy and the last petal is left that supposedly of course is where you're settled on as far as where this person where you are uh with this person great little distraction i don't know that i would put a lot of stock in that as far as uh counseling is concerned but um In any case, fine. Games, games have their place. But sometimes we need more. And um, it's a very easy point to make, a very easy segue then to make it. We need more than just that sort of thing, that silly little game in our relationships with each other. I mean, do you not know, do you not need to know where you stand and not leave it left to, the number of petals on a flower? You need to know where where we stand with, with people that are important to us. But would wouldn't it be the case all the more so with God? Really and truly needing to know where we stand with Him. Uh, In what way is, and how is His affection directed towards us, if at all, I guess. Uh, We need more than just games. We need a whole lot more. Um, If you have a Bible with you, I ask you to turn to John chapter 13. Uh, this is the fourth of the four Gospels. Uh, John chapter 13, uh, the setting is this is the night before Jesus is betrayed. Uh, it's when what is oftentimes referred to as the, the upper room discourse. Um, you think in terms of right on the eve, Jesus knows what's coming. Uh, he knows very well what's coming. He's moving towards What's coming. I guess it might be a little bit better, clearer way to put that. Um, and with that, everything that he's saying has so I mean everything that Jesus says, of course, has complete eternal weight to it. But it just seems like it's ratcheted up just a little bit more, if it's possible to to ratchet give more than eternal weight to Jesus' words. But it is the night before he's about to be killed. And he knows that. And so that the heaviness of the drama. Uh, especially certainly for him, uh, is is palpable. Um, So John 13, I'm going to read just a short passage here, verses 31 through 35. When he had gone out, Jesus said, and the he, by the way, is Judas, so that's all the more of the context going on here in the flow of things. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are on the the other side of uh, Valentine's Day, and uh, all of us have been besieged, surrounded, I guess, by red and pink and white, wherever we went over the last uh, several weeks, whatever stores we went to, and then the the assaults on the television and even the radio reminded uh, of this and for some of us that was fine uh, for others of us it was a little a little painful a little at the least awkward uh, it just this season is is it hits us all uh, in in different ways um that that day um, this this weekend um, but we're all pulled. We hear of you speaking of this, this love of yours for us, and then uh, as of a necessity of ours for one another. We're all feeling something uh, tugged, pressed here. Um, that Paul, in that letter, that portion of that letter we read a little while ago from 1 Corinthians, would have to tell us what love is, uh, is telling in and of itself. We, we need to be told. Um, and, and we need to be admonished here and guided here and helped here. And so that's what we're asking for here this morning, that You would help us. Uh, help us do the things that You have called us to do. And We pray this in Your name. Amen. Sonnets from the Portuguese, published in 1850, is a collection of 44 love sonnets by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Number 43 is perhaps one of the most Well-known, famous lines in all the English language. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. And through the years since those words were penned, no few have attempted to do that, to, to count the ways. My question that I want to present to you this morning is this. What if God did that? What if God counted the ways that He loves us? Or put it, if I can spin it a little bit, what if we could number the innumerable ways that God has shown His love for His people? John 13, 35 A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another by this commandment. All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you've been around CPC any length of time at all, you've heard me talk about this text in some way, shape, or form and how it connects to biblical peacemaking and conflict resolution and how that is a, a is a vital component, the call to love that's priority and the high stakes that are involved. But I have to tell you, over the last few days, I've been mulling this something over and is, I think I've missed something the first part in a three-part sequence. What are the three parts, right? Just as I have loved you... So, first, second, so you are to love one another. Third, then the world will know that you are my disciples. we will put it another way. If you love one another as I have loved you, then the world will know that you are my disciples. Here's my question. I fear that I haven't thought about this enough, and I don't think we've talked about this enough. The first part, how has he loved us? how has he loved us he says just as i have loved you so you are to love one another but how has he loved us how has he loved us and, and if we grapple we're to grapple with that just a little bit how might that impact our those relationships you know that second stage of how we love each other well the, you know the, you can answer this in at least two ways um How has he loved us? If you just look at the immediate context of John 13, this is, I said a moment ago, before we read it, this is the night before Jesus is betrayed. He has just washed the disciples' feet. He has just washed the disciples' feet, and and, in doing so, he has given them um, an image, a living parable of what it was that he was about to do for them and dying for them on the cross, and the washing that will come. Of forgiveness. It's an image. It's a living parable. And he's getting down there on the floor and washing those dirty feet. But it's more than that. It's also not just that, that image and parable, but model and example of what he's calling them, all of his followers still today, to do for one another. So that's, that's one way you can answer the question, how has he shown this love for us? Well, there, read it. John 13. But what I think is help worth thinking about is this, and that is taking a big step back and looking at the broader context of all the Bible, of all the ways that He has revealed this love to us. In the grand scheme, not just in that immediate context, but in the grand scheme of things. Robert Pedersen in a 2011 issue of By Faith points this, this out. And as odd as it may sound to you, I you to hang with me here. That church history, that if those of you are familiar with church history, what we would call the Reformed tradition, and in that subset within that, even the five points of Calvinism can help us here. What? How has he loved us in at least these five ways? I'm going to unpack that here together. That's what you're looking there in your outline. You see five points. It's like, whoa, doesn't he usually do three? Yeah. It's five. We're here to like one. So, you know, anyway. No, I'm just kidding. Um, So how has he loved us in at least these five ways? And I want to unpack this. And may it warm your hearts here in this cold, cold morning. So first, how has the Lord loved us despite our corruption? Despite everything he knows about us, despite all the, the twistedness and the warpedness of our hearts, he loves us. John 3. And by the way, if, if when I say turn in your Bibles and you're like, I don't really turn, I click, you're going to have a hard time over the next few minutes because and, and, you're going to need to do some fast clicking, okay? Because we're going to be going around to some different passages. I'll just give you a heads up. Most of it's in John and Ephesians, but not exclusively. So hang there with me. So John, John chapter 3. Looking and just listening in to this uh, conversation between Jesus and this man named Nicodemus. John chapter 3, starting in verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Skipping on to verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Do you get the implication, just reading between the lines what Jesus is saying here? There is, spiritually speaking, there is a deadness to us, and it's why we have to be born again. He doesn't have to use that language if it wasn't already the case. That's the assumption he's making there. Paul writes about this quite a bit in his letters, Ephesians. So we're going there now, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Paul writes of this in some pretty uh, dramatic ways. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, if you're trying to find that, that's after Romans and the Corinthian letters and Galatians and now Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-3. through three. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What is Paul saying there? that left to ourselves, spiritually speaking, we were dead, enslaved, and condemned. Now that, that's strong medicine, I know. It's a pill that's bitter to swallow, but we have got to hear that. We are not ready for the gospel cure until we understand our, the spiritual straits that we are in. And that is what Paul is making, making very plain here. Now, how then does that tell us in any way how God has loved us. And I would say again this, despite our corruption, despite how He found us, despite how messed up, twisted up, He knows we are, He came to us and has loved us and lavished that love upon us. And through the years, no few poets have found their hearts stirred by these ideas and taking pen in hand, writing beautiful lyrics that we sing that are in our hymnals and You can see there in the quotes and notes I have five. And and the first one, Joseph Hart wrote these words in uh, the 18th century Come, ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. How has he loved us? Despite all he saw, despite all he knows, he loves us. Now, taking that to heart, embracing that reality, knowing that is true of you, the person you see in the mirror, and the person that you see on your left and right and front and back, how might that affect how we engage in relationship with each other? If we know that this, these, these real, the reality of, of uh, we are totally corrupted, completely, utterly, all through, diseased, spiritually depraved, completely unable to do anything of any saving good outside of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, outside of this rebirth that Jesus spoke of in John chapter 3. If we know those things are true of us and the people around us, how then are we going to relate to the people? Would it not then make sense that when someone messes up, falls short, hurts us, we will not be just utterly, we won't be utterly shocked. You might say we would have seen it coming. We won't be just completely disillusioned with the human race and wiping our hands of them. Because we saw it coming. We know it's true of us. We know it's true of all of us. So why would it surprise us? So it's partly what it means to be loved by God in this way and then to love others in an extension, as an extension of that. Well, that's the first point. Second point, uh, He loves us with a love that is wondrously unconditional. It's wondrously unconditional. We read of this in the book of Acts, uh, many other places, but this is just one place I want to look here. The unconditional love of God uh, for us. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. This is the first missionary journey. Uh, Acts 13, verse 48. Uh, Paul, has been, Paul and Barnabas have been preaching, and they, this is the response. Acts thirteen forty-eight. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, I need to read that last clause again, because you need to see the order of events. What was the cause and what was the effect? And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. It is not that God looks down through the corridors of time and sees who will believe and then chooses them. It is rather He chooses who will believe and as a consequence of that, they in time believe. We believe because we were chosen to believe. And that's why we believe. And that's what the, the, the Scripture writers are saying and making very, very plain here. Paul Uh, writes of this no little bit. Back to the book of Ephesians. I hope you kept your thumb there or put a bookmark there. Ephesians chapter 1. So much here. It's a freight train of biblical theology here. In Ephesians chapter 1 starting in verse 3. God, this is all of God, all of His grace. What are the implications of this? It's, he speak, Paul is speaking here of a sovereign election without conditions, a sovereign love without conditions, which as a consequence of that means then, there, it doesn't ultimately matter if I have the best day tomorrow I've ever had in my life. He will not love me more for that. It does not matter tomorrow if I have the worst day, the most sinful day, the most wicked and depraved day I've had in my life tomorrow. It won't mean He loves me less. Not at all, because His love for me, His love for His people, His love for you has nothing to do with your merits or demerits. His affection is simply on you, and that's it. And that's it. And there's wonderful security in that. How are you loved? How has He shown His love? In an unconditional way. Again, a hymn that we could read from here just quickly. Samuel Stone in this, song, this uh, hymn we sing so often, second stanza, he just assumes it. He just writes it. He's moving on. I, I, don't, know how, I don't know if I've ever really picked up on this and thought about just the first, this, the first line in the second stanza. Elect from every nation. Yet one over all the earth. What would it mean to know that the reason that I, have, I, have my, I am secure in the Father's hand is because of His choosing, because of election, because of predestination, because of the unconditionality of His love. Embracing that, what would, that, what would the consequence of, of, of knowing such love, how would that impact how I would love others? Would it not mean that my love for you, your love for me, would have nothing to do with what we can do for each other? Or whether or not we're measuring up to our mutual expectations of each other, because it's not on conditions. It's partly at least of how the Lord has loved us. Thirdly, thirdly, it is a beautiful, beautifully specific love, beautifully specific love. John chapter 10, John 10 verse 11. John chapter 10, verse 11. By, by the way, John 10 is so, so rich in all these things we're looking at here this morning. John 10, verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Skipping down to verses 14 and 15. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus is drawing out here some contrast between he is the good shepherd and the The bad shepherd, the evil shepherd, the the hireling. There's a contrast there, but there's also another contrast between those in the pasture, the sheep of the pasture that are his and those that are not. Those that are of his flock and those that are are not. There's a specificity here. There's a definitiveness here. Or Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, when he says husbands... Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The implication in that analogy is a a specificity, an exclusivity, a particularity, a definitiveness to that love. It's not just love any woman, love that woman as Christ has loved who? The church, his own, the flock, his sheep. Implications of this. His love in a special way. Jesus' love is, in a special way is a definitive love. Focus. Definitive. It is unique. Um, he knows us by name. It is not just a, 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 a list of names when He thinks of you. It is your name. Your name written in the book of life. Your face that comes to mind when he thinks of you. Not just a sea of faces. You take that to heart and you begin to grapple with that. He loves you. Yes, us. But you. That ought to fill your heart with an appreciative awe. To thrill your heart with excitement and yet humble you at the same time. And the hymn writers speak of this, alluding to it at the least, Augustus Toplity, rock of ages, rock of ages, cleft for, you can almost hear the wonder, me. Let me hide myself in thee. This is how he has loved us, with a beautiful definitiveness, a particular love, a specific Love, focused on us as as individuals. What would it look like then to love one another in a way that is patterned in any any even poor way after such a love? Would it not mean that we would have to be willing to say it's not just that I love y'all in a general, vague, ambiguous sort of way? Oh yeah, I love other people. I love, getting more specific now, I love my brothers and sisters in Christ, but rather I love you, brother, and you, sister, and and with a name attached to that perhaps, and, and you with all of your, in a charitable way, weaknesses and eccentricities and failures and weaknesses. I love you in a specific, particular way. Well, that's how we've been loved. In a definitive sort of specific sort of way. What else? Fourthly, we see here at least at the least he loves us in a deeply compelling way. John chapter six. John chapter six verse forty four. No one can come, this is Jesus. No one can come to the excuse me, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. There there is a certainty in this work. He draws, we come. In order to come, he has to draw, and when he draws, we come. Paul speaks of this as it fleshes itself out in his account of the earliest days of the church in Acts 16, verse 14, and this is the second missionary journey. Acts 16, verse 14. The one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. How did that happen? It was a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Every bit as wondrous as the creation of the world. Every bit as wondrous as the resurrection. Her, her own coming to life. Spiritually speaking, that, that rebirth. Implications of this. Thinking about this, how this impacts how, how we understand the Lord's love for us. If you're, a, if you're a follower of Christ, your repentance and your faith before Him, that once for all sense and in that ongoing sense, didn't come from you. Repentance and faith in and of themselves are gifts. Gifts of God. Works of God. As he's drawn you to himself. He he makes himself irresistible to us. We We cannot resist that drawing influence upon our hearts. Where by the power of the Spirit he shows us our need of him. He enlightens our minds in the knowledge of the gospel. He renews our wills. He persuades. He enables us to embrace that gospel. How has he loved us? In a way that is deeply compelling. Such that we cannot help but come to Him. We don't know who wrote these words, but again we sing them. The fourth one on the list. I sought the Lord and afterward I knew He moved my soul to seek Him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of Thee. How has He loved us? In a compelling way. Now, this is tricky. How, how would we? What would that look like in our love for each other, knowing that we have been loved in that sort of way ourselves by God? How would that influence, how would that affect, how does that impact our love for each other at the least? Can we not say in a horizontal human way that others would find themselves because of Christ's work in our lives compelled by something going on in us? Drawn to, attracted by, curious. Like a magnetic force operating in their life over the course of time. They just cannot help but wonder what on earth or of this earth or outside of this earth is going on with you. How has this change come about in your life? It's partly how the Lord has loved us in a compelling sort of way. Lastly, final, fifth, in a long persevering way. This is really good news. It's all good news. But if you've had a bad day, this is really good news. John chapter 10, John 10 verses 25 to 30. John 10, 25 to 30. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe Because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Is that not good news? Paul writes of this in a wonderful way in Romans. Romans chapter 8. Verses 28 to 30, uh, Romans 8, verses 28 to 30, where he says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Oh my goodness. At the least, Paul is saying that God has been, is now, and forever will be working for our greatest good, our eternal good, our everlasting good. In fact, the certainty of that is, is so sure that he writes of what's coming in the future in the past tense. Oh my goodness. The implications. He preserves us. He holds us. He preserves us. And as a consequence of that, we will persevere. When it's all said and done at the end of the day, because God promises to preserve us, we will persevere. You know what that means then? I know this sounds really odd to mix these two things together. He preserves us. As a consequence of that, we will persevere. As a consequence of that, you can rest. you can rest with some assurance and certainty. E.S. Hall, last of these quotes. And if my feet would go astray, they cannot, for I know that Jesus guides my faltering steps as joyfully I go. And though I may not see His face, my faith is strong and clear. that each, in each hour of sore distress, my Savior will be near. That's how He's loved us. With a love that another, this another song says, will not let me go. A love that is long persevering. That's how He's loved you. Now, what would that look like? If you know that, if you're embracing that, if it's making its way into inroads into your heart, what would that look like as a, in terms of how we would then love one another? Would we not be a bit slower to forsake our commitments to each other? Would we be perhaps much slower and much quicker to stand by one another? To not run from those who drive us nuts. To not reject those who just irritate us or forsake, turn aside from those who have disappointed us. How has He loved you? Right? What a consequence of that be. That's how He's loved us. Now, I'm going to wrap this up real quickly. Why press in so hard on these three parts? You know, that that sequence that I said earlier. Just as he has loved us, so we are to love one another, and as a consequence of that, the world will know. And by the way, there's actually a fourth part. If you read the whole of John 13, it begins with, as the Father has loved me. So, But I want to stick to the point here, okay? So, why stress this, this, these issues of, of the, the three parts and trying to think this through? And how has He loved us? Well, I want you to think. I've got a two-part answer to the three parts. And that, that is, is this. The number of times that, that you have heard, all, heard or all but heard or said or all but said these words. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? I know I should be a whole lot more patient and a whole lot less demanding. I know I should be a whole lot more gracious and a whole lot less judgmental. I know I should be a whole lot anxious and a whole lot more calm and assured, but I'm not. What's wrong with me? Or another question, what's wrong with the church? What happened to our influence in the Western world? Where would it go? I started to listen to a podcast a few days ago on this very question. I deleted it. I'm sick of hearing those those discussions. I don't need to. The answer is right here in John 13. Jesus is connecting his love for us with the necessity of our love for one another. The vertical love and the experience of that and the application of that in the horizontal level. He is connecting those two things. And he says, it is simply not enough. It is simply not enough to talk much about my love of you and to do little with your love for one another. There is no power in that proclamation and the world is sick of it. This disconnect between the vertical and and the horizontal. And can you blame anybody? Can you blame anybody for seeing right through it? So he's connecting his love to ours. But I think also in this text, by an implication of all that, is that he's also pointing not just to the disease, but to the cure. To the, not just to the problem, but to the answer. You see, if our love for one another is faltering, if on the horizontal we are failing, what then is the answer? What then is the cure? To look to His love to us. That's what we've lost sight of. We've lost sight of His love for us. If we're faltering on the horizontal, it's only because we've lost sight of the vertical. If we're failing in our love for each other, it's only because we have such a poor understanding of His love for us. That's what's going on there. So we need to... to well, I mean, goodness gracious, we need to hear again and again and again of the love of God for us in Christ. That is what will warm our cold hearts. Our cold, hardened hearts. And that's what will win the hearts, the cold, hardened hearts of the world around us to Christ and His Gospel. I know, we've all heard, there's snow coming. Brace yourself. There's snow coming. And, and mo- most likely, if we get as much as the weathermen are saying, we're going to be building young and old children alike are going to be out there building some snowmen that's fine they're cute and it's fun and they're great to look at but you know here's the deal unless we're talking about olaf or frosty snowmen snowmen are hard to hug and they don't do much of a job at hugging back right i mean they're just cold they're icy they're hard and their little stubby arms don't extend very well. And they're kind of brittle and thin. They don't hug, and they don't hug back. And you know the old stories, the myth, the magic of the story. For, them, for anything to happen with Frosty or Olaf, it takes power coming from the outside to bring life within. And that's what I need. And that's what you need. And that's what we all need. That's the gospel story. God's love coming in from the outside to thaw us, to make us alive. Let's go to him in prayer. Oh, Lord, we hear this call and we hear this command to love. Just as You have loved us, so we are to love, and then the world will know. And so, of course, we need to hear that call. We do. We really, really do. But we also need to know how we have been loved. And we ask that You'd help us to hear. Help us to hear this morning. Maybe it's just one of these five points that, that some of us need to hear anew and afresh, And just to sink in for a good long while. To be steeping in for a good long while. Maybe it's two, three, four, I don't know, all five. But oh God, we we know that these things, these observations here that we've been looking at here the last few minutes aren't meant to be just cold theological formulations, but a rich description of the way you have engaged with us and continue to engage with us that if we hear it and take it to heart will warm us from within. If we'll just hear. So we pray that you give us Eyes to see and, and ears to hear. And then maybe in Your, in your choosing, ah, may the world know. May the world see You at work. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.